0: Okay, I uh, put uh, this up on the board so we would have a uh, little easier time following the uh, discussion here. That's a W, doesn't look, oh, that's a nice eraser. (laughs) That one's so dead it's become an eraser. That's pretty good. So I took the time to... uh, Uh, put a little chart up here we are discussing the Council of Nicaea we've given the uh, background up to this point Um, we have by tradition uh, 318 bishops who have been gathered in the summer of 325 uh, to the city of Nicaea at the uh, invitation of the Roman Emperor Constantine and we talked a little bit last time about, uh, you know, was Constantine a true Christian? What were his motivations? Well, we don't know. Um, we emphasized the fact that the terminology that the council will eventually adopt, which we'll look at today, uh, does not come from Constantine himself, uh, though there are people online uh, who will make claims like that. Uh, unfortunately, there the, the amount of... Falsehood uh, that you can uh, dig up on the Council of Nicaea online, especially on YouTube, is uh, pretty pretty astounding um, it's blamed for everything uh, under the sun it all It all happened to the Council of Nicaea uh, it's very easy to to get away with that kind of accusation but we need to know a little something about the views and the party parties and leaders of uh, the three different perspectives. Uh, Arius was in attendance at the invitation, sort of the insistence, of uh, Constantine. And he had uh, two uh, Egyptian bishops, uh, Theonis and Secundus, uh, in support of him. But they were clearly, uh, from the beginning, a a minority uh, group at the Council of Nicaea. And as we've already explained, their view is that Christ is of a different substance than the Father. So he is hetero, hetero, another. Uzios means substance, um, uh, kind, uh, substance and kind. That's the problem is that words are difficult to uh, use of uh, these, these things. But hetero, usios, of a different substance. So uh, the Son is not, the Son may be called a god, can be seen as a god in a secondary sense. Uh, but remember the phraseology, there was a time when the son was not, uh, which means the son, when you have that, that chasm between the created and the uncreated, the son is on the created side uh, of that chasm. Uh, no matter how exalted he is, his substance is different than that uh, of the father. He is a creation, and so this is the Arian position. And, of course, uh, one of the uh, elements of, of human existence, I think, is the fact that when you get two sides together that are in disagreement, there are always going to be people who want to be in the middle and say, can't we all just get along? And uh, so there is a, a middle group, and they they sort of formed at the council because The top and the bottom are are the two opposite sides. Uh, You have what would be called, eventually, the Orthodox Party, led by Alexander of Alexandria, uh, Hoseus of Cordova, and Athanasius is in attendance, but while most people, when they talk about the Council of Nicaea, because Athanasius would, for decades, be the primary defender of the Council of Nicaea. It's assumed that he was one of the bishops there, but as I mentioned earlier, and I think it's important for you to know this, uh, Athanasius was not a bishop at the Council of Nicaea. He was a deacon, and so he was under uh, Alexander and was supportive of him. Three years later, he would become uh, the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, but at that, So he obviously had a, a part in, in the Council Um, and was recognized for his brilliance and things like that but he was not one of the bishops at at that time Uh, but he is there and of course uh, their position is that the son is of the same substance as the father now at the council uh, this group attempted to utilize Strictly scriptural language to exclude all possible Arian interpretations. But they couldn't do it. The Arians had already developed ways of reading any biblical text in such a way as to redefine the idea of the relationship of the Father and the Son so that the Son remains a creature. I'm sort of facing a similar situation in a modern context. Um, I mentioned last week, I hate, to, I hate to mention these things in the church history thing because that dates them. And so 10 years from now, someone's gonna be listening to this and now this debate will be 10 years old, but there's not much I can do about it. Um, in just a couple weeks, I'll be debating uh, the lead representative of Iglesia Cristo, which is a very large cult in the Philippines up in Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, they're trying. They bought a town up there, and they're expanding this direction. And um, it is sad to be watching the cultic mentality of the people. Uh, there have already been people who write to me, "We've already won. We've already won." <laughs> it's, it's like I love the open mind there, um, but because uh, we've already won, because we know there's only one true God. Yeah, I believe that too. But anyway, uh, it's uh, but. Uh, they actually, for example, though they j- say Jesus was merely a man, will worship him. And don't see a contradiction between the worship of Jesus and the idea that there's only one true God. It's, it's inconsistent, but they, they, they find a way around anything. It's, it's not a consistent way, but they, they find a way around anything. So this is sort of, it happened uh, almost 1,700 years ago. Uh, it, it, it continues to happen today. Uh, there's a new group. I, when I was uh, down in, in room uh, a few weeks ago, I, I met with a guy who's studying a brand new group, a uh, brand new cult group that's developing down there. Um, similar type of stuff. Similar denials of the deity of Christ, but they're, they're still in that fast development period. Every generation faces the, the same type of thing. And so, the term that they presented... They didn't make up this term. The term homoousios of the same substance was a term that was already in theological usage. The problem was the Eastern bishops did not like the term. Why? Because, as I said before, this is not the first theological conflict in the church. And primarily in the East, they had had to deal with another. Heresy, an even earlier heresy. Anyone remember what that earlier heresy was? Sean's not here, so you're all left having to come up with an answer on your own. So you know, all the rest of the time, you can just sort of sit back and go, Sean will answer. Don't worry about it. He's you know. Anyone remember what the East had uh, had to deal with already? Chirp, chirp, chirp. <laughs> Sneezing won't help. That's always a good way, because you figure, well, you can't call on me, because now I'm having to breathe hard, because I sneezed, and so that's a really good way of getting around things. No one has, no one remembers. I can make my lower lip quiver if I need to, and that always gets some of the ladies going, Oh, Actually, it makes my daughter laugh, but other than that. They had already been dealing uh, with what we called uh, monarchianism, modalism the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit are just different modes of being, they're not divine persons so there's one God one person, it's a form of Unitarianism uh, and also known as Sabellianism. and uh, they were very uncomfortable with the term homoousios because it sounded like what the modalists would say Uh, that there is only one substance and one person. And so they were somewhat resistant to this idea of homoousius because they understood what it was saying, that, that Jesus is of the same substance, the Father, that is fully God, but they were concerned in light of the conflicts that they have had to deal with as to how it could be misinterpreted. And that's sort of where the middle group developed out of was Eusebius of Caesarea, coming from an eastern church, um, had already had communication with his church that this would not be an appropriate term to use. And so he suggested a middle ground, which would be homoousios, of a similar substance. So the idea there would be similar as in divine like the fathers, but not the same. It's a, it's an attempt to try to refute the Arians. Yeah, the Arians are wrong in saying Jesus didn't exist at some point in time. But Homo is going to help the people we're still fighting in the East, so we need something that, that we can sort of fit in between. And you can you can see uh, what the idea was, and uh, someone, I forget which church historian it was has commented that uh, incredible theological uh, conclusions can be defined by a single letter, a single stroke of a pen. And the difference between homoousios and homoiousios is a single stroke of a pen. Um, because homoiousios would require you to go, well, similar substance as in the one divine nature but not the same person. Okay, I could see how you could get there, but it would be so weak that it certainly would not survive the challenges that would come against it over the, even over the next number of, of, of decades. And so a lot of the time at the council was spent in conversation primarily between these two sides assuring these guys that Homo was not destructive of the individual existence of the father the Son, and the Spirit, just asserting that the Father, Son, and Spirit share the one being, there's only one Uzias. So if you have only one Uzias, one being of God, you, you can't have homoi Uzias without having an implicit subordination already in the language that you're using. And so much of the conversation was between these two sides. Uh, eventually, uh, the middle group is, is convinced Uh, It's interesting to read uh, Eusebius' letter uh, to his church uh, back in Caesarea, uh, where he explains why, in essence, uh, they were allowed to, why they gave in, and at the final vote, there were, it was only Arius and his two Egyptian bishops that refused to vote and to uh, to go along. Now, I mentioned last time somewhat, a little something about the role of Constantine. I I do this because so much is said about this. Uh, There are many people in academia who will simply off the top of their head say, well, Constantine called the church together, told them what to do, and they all said, okay, fine, whatever. Um, this This is not substantiated by any of the original documentation, what little of it we have. Eusebius of Caesarea is also the Eusebius of church history. He is the one who wrote the first major church history, Eusebius' church history, same guy. There's another Eusebius at Nicaea called Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is a semi-Aryan. So you need to differentiate between those those two individuals. And um, when Eusebius describes uh, how Constantine came into the council in his flowing golden robes and all the superlatives that Eusebius is, uses. Philip Schaff, his eight-volume History of the Church is rather dated now, but still one of the best available, uh, describes Eusebius's panegyrical flattery. Because Eusebius is writing in a later period of time, and he is trying to remain in the good stead of uh, the Roman hierarchy. And so it does leave us somewhat skeptical of exactly how accurate uh Eusebius's descriptions are. Uh, in other words, he was he was not in the no spin zone. Uh he was definitely in the spin zone. Uh, to utilize uh the language of certain uh people on Fox News today. Um, so uh the 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 question really is that you know, what was Constantine's desire. Well, he wanted a unified church. First and foremost, from his perspective, uh, this was to help solidify the unity of the Roman Empire, which had only in the past decade been fractured by war, so on and so forth. And so his powers depend upon the unification of that Roman Empire, and he sees a unified Christian church as vitally important to that. And so, if he... Basically, if he's felt the wind blowing one way or the other, that's the direction he's going to go. As a good politician, he sees that Arius is not the direction to go. Uh, There's there's not enough of the bishops. And evidently, what he sees is that the, the strongest personalities and the strongest arguments, as far as he can tell, are coming from what we would call the orthodox position. And so... As uh, Schaff points out in regards to the term Homoousios, the word was not an invention of the Council of Nicaea, still less of Constantine, but had previously arisen in theological language and occurs even in Origin and among the Gnostics. So this was this was simply the term that the Orthodox found that the the Arians exposed them. They simply could not, in any way, shape, or form, sign that and and uh, agree to that kind of uh, of perspective. So, uh, once the Orthodox party convinced the middle group that Homoousias was not in any way attempting to give aid and comfort to the modalists and civilians, uh, then they came together, and the resulting creed signed by all but Arius and those two bishops was quite clear in its position. You've heard it. You have it uh, in, your, uh, in your hymnals. Um, briefly, just the, the relevant section... We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance, homoousias, with the Father, through whom all things were made. And so you have the clear distinction of the Son from the Father. You have the assertion of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. He is described as the only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, not a different substance, not a like substance. Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, again, emphasizing the fact that that term begettle is not a creative process that brings the Son into existence at a point in time. And then the key term, of one substance with the Father, homo, and then, of course, his role as creator, through whom all things were made. Now, what made this also significant, the creed also contained the anathema for those who rejected these truths, and for the first time, such anathemas carried with them civil repercussions. Arius and some of his followers were banished, even though for a short time Uh, While it's quite true that this set a precedent that would eventually have tremendous impact upon culture and church, is also a very separate issue from the theological proclamation of the council. And so it is significant. We we need to recognize uh, that, as I said before, this is a watershed in the history of the church. Up to this point in time, the church is the persecuted minority. Uh, Now you have the beginnings, and it's going to grow over time. No one at this time could have foreseen what the eventuality was going to be. Constantine did not say the Roman Empire was a Christian empire. That was the, Theodosius about uh, 55 years later. Um, but the, the germ, the, the, the seed, is sown here of eventually the creation of what we call sacralism, uh, the joining of church and state, which would exist in the Christian experience for about 1,100 years or more. Uh, it, was, it had been 1,100 years at the time of the Reformation where you had had sacralism in the West, the, the state church. It's a long time. Uh, it's real easy for us to, to, as moderns, who invest very, very, very little in the idea of historical continuity, Um, It it seems that today we could could care less what our our parents or grandparents thought about government or the uh, the purpose of the nation or politics or anything else. Nobody before us had any brilliance because they weren't as technologically advanced as we are. Um, It's very easy for us to not realize the weight that this sameness over time carried and the fact that it was it was something that gave a great deal of comfort to individuals that things were going to continue the same, and there was going to be stability. Things like that. Uh, our, our, we don't know anything about stability any longer. Uh, instability is the new stability in our day. Yes, sir. Um, if you're going to address this topic later, save your answer. But um, is the development of sacralism related to? Uh, infant baptism as well. There's a book we've discussed before, actually, Mr. Ricketts lent it to me, called right. The Reformers, Reformers and the Stepchildren. And he argues that secularism, or what he calls Constantinianism, created the grounds in which the state wanted every single subject to be in the church, and that infant baptism was a way to do that, whereas adult baptism was very uncomfortable for them, because that meant you had a church that was separate from the state. Right. Yeah, there's a direct connection. And um the, the The timing infant baptism has already developed but is in it, but is not yet universal uh, at this period of time uh, it 's right at the same time period that it is uh, for example, Constantine holds off his baptism until his deathbed uh, because there were people who had the idea we 're going to do a section on baptism eventually sort of get a little bit past this, and then we'll stop and need to do a section on, uh, on the supper and baptism, just on theological topics, just to make sure we're covering most of the ground anyways. Uh, the problem is that uh, there are almost no subjects in church history that I have uh, found that the books on those subjects are more biased than on the subject of baptism. If you're a Pado baptist then you read history as a Pado baptist If you're not, you read it in a different way, and it's just amazing uh, how biased the work really is on that subject. And so it's, it's, a, it's one of the toughest areas to deal with in any fair way in regards to church history. But uh, there's no question that there is, at this time period, the growth and popularity of infant baptism, and I, I think that that is given a huge uh, explosion of impetus uh, as the church moves toward the sacral position so yeah I'd say the 4th century is the biggest period of development at that time because you still have, uh, you still have adult baptism being held off uh, as the best way of the cleansing of sins which already means that there is a degradation of the understanding of the gospel and, and baptism and things like that already um, but yeah it does become the token of citizenship which is why by the time we get to the Reformation, the greatest uh, resistance to the establishment of, of a free church uh, is the fact that if you don't baptize your kids, that's the, the, the baptismal roles of the church are the tax roles of the state. They're one and the same. So it's considered to be rebellion against the state to uh, even uh, think of such things. Uh, that's a long ways from here. It's a long ways from Nicaea, but yeah, it's part of the it's part of the development. There's no no two ways about it. And yes, many people do call it Constantinianism because of that. Now, Constantine didn't dream of anything like that, so it's not sure it's a fair term, but uh yeah, that's where it, that's where it definitely comes from. So um these anathemas, again wasn't the intention, uh but uh it it does become the uh the result. Now um it, it, I should mention, I, I need to mention, in the time, obviously, as I've already mentioned to you, no one at the time identified Nicaea as an ecumenical council. The term ecumenical council is a later innovation, has a specific meaning, worldwide council, binding on all Christians, etc. cetera, et cetera. Um, It's anachronistic to view it that way. Nobody at that time viewed it. Uh, didn't have, have categories for understanding it. So over the next number of decades, as Arianism, through politics, became ascendant, and uh, Nicaea was overthrown by numerous councils, no one was sitting around going, oh, we don't know what to believe because we don't have ecumenical councils. That, that this, was not, this was not something that everybody was was thinking. And it's interesting that when Athanasius wrote, as he wrote voluminously, in defense of the Council of Nicaea. Listen, Listen to these words from a number of decades later. Vainly, then, do they run about with the pretext that they have demanded councils for the faith's sake. For divine scripture is sufficient above all things. But if a council be needed on the point... There are the proceedings of the fathers, for the Nicene bishops did not neglect this matter, but stated the doctrines so exactly that persons reading their words honestly cannot but be reminded by them of the religion towards Christ announced in divine scripture. So how does Athanasius understand this? Athanasius does not see the proceedings of the council as an addition to scripture, He does not see Scripture as insufficient to establish the truth of who Christ is. He says it is sufficient above all things. But what he sees is the Council of Nicaea as a fully sufficient explanation of what is found in Scripture itself. And hence, the continuous call on the part of the Arians for more and more councils, uh, he finds uh, to be disingenuous. Because it's not going to accomplish anything. The scriptures have already spoken. The Council of Nicaea has already spoken. Uh, they're going back over old ground. Uh, but the point is that what's found in Nicaea is reminded by them of the religion towards Christ announced in divine scripture. So what's the foundation? What's the, what's the sufficient source for Athanasius? Is scripture itself. And that's the major difference between how the Arians argued over the next number of decades and how Athanasius did. Athanasius stood on Scripture. Athanasius won. They lost. Um, And uh, that's an important thing to to recognize. Now, I do want to mention something else that is almost never mentioned. I I briefly mentioned to you last time that you'll have a lot of people today who will say, well, I hold the seven ecumenical councils, and I'm, you know, so I'm a... Catholic Christian in the sense that I hold all the early church and all the rest of this stuff. And I always sort of chuckle when people say that. Because there are people who do, but um, very, very few who say that, especially who are not either Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, recognize that uh, the creed was not the only thing that came out of Nicaea. Uh, What you have in your hymnal there is just, actually what you have in the hymnal is actually from 381. Uh, it's the Nicene Constantinoplean version, so it's a little bit longer than what Nicaea actually produced, but um, Pretty much same thing uh, That's not the only thing that came out of the council Now you already know I think I've emphasized to you about 20 times now. They didn't say anything about the canon of scripture <laughs> um, They didn't argue about it um, It's interesting that they could argue deep things of of scripture like this without having to produce a specific canon list, and it's also interesting that no one ever argues for or against this from non-canonical sources. So it's the canon's already functioning even without having to list it out, but they also promulgated what are called canons. So for example, the Council of Trent 1546 to whenever it finished, 1564 I think. Um, The Council of Trent produced canons and decrees. There's an entire book. Canons and decrees, the Council of Trent. And uh, these canons become the, the, the basis of ecclesiastical law. And Nicaea had canons as well, and the vast majority of, of people that, that talk about being, I hold all these, they've never read them. And they don't hold to them anyways, if they did read them. So one of the most important ones is Canon 6 from Nicaea, and this is what it says, Let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail, that the bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges. Now, why would that be at all relevant to us today? Well, it's relevant because what you don't have at the Council of Nicaea are Roman Catholics. (laughs) Now, what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, every Roman Catholic thinks everybody at the Council of Nicaea was a Roman Catholic. When you're talking to a Roman Catholic, just this week, set up a debate. This next trip I'm going on, I couldn't pass this up. Um, I'm going to fly into London first. We're going to have a debate uh, at the Brompton Oratory. Look it up on Google. Gorgeous building. Beautiful building. It's this incredible spot, Roman Catholic spot known for its uh, choirs, you know, the Gregorian chants, and stuff like that. We're going to have a debate there on the Marian dogmas against one of the, really one of the nicest, smartest, uh, best-spoken Roman Catholic apologists I know in the world today, Peter D. Williams. And uh, I'm going to be massively jet-lagged, so prayers would be appreciated, but um, we're going to be debating there. And if you if you've listened to any of those, those debates we've had on the, on the papacy, someone like that just automatically views church history as Roman Catholic. And it just bugs him to death when I say there was not a single Roman Catholic to house in Icaea. Because no. there's nobody in that day that we would have even understood what that term meant. Because it's an oxymoron. Catholic is kata halas, according to the whole, universal. Roman is the opposite of Catholic. <laughs> Uh, so it's the universal church based in Rome. Well, there were, everybody back then would have called themselves Catholic, but then attached Roman to it would have made no sense to them whatsoever. And so there was no one at the Council of Nicaea who believed what modern Roman Catholics believe about the Assumption of Mary and, and uh, uh, Immaculate Conception and, and all that kind of stuff. Certainly did not believe that the Bishop of Rome was the visible head of the entire church. And here is an example of it. Uh, Canon 6 says, uh, well actually it's the uh, Bishop of is in charge of these areas, and Antioch's in charge of these areas, and Rome's in charge of these areas. Hmm, sounds like equality uh, amongst these, even these archbishops. Now that's still a move from what we saw in Ignatius, remember? Remember when Ignatius writes in church, in church of Rome, Rome doesn't even have a single bishop. Each bishop is in charge of his little city. Well now there's been a movement. Now you have archbishops who are in charge of an entire area. And that's what you still have in Eastern Orthodoxy today. But even, even that's a move. But what both of them prove is the idea that Peter set up, was set up as the one Bishop of Rome from a historical perspective is just simply laughable. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. But go tell Francis that. Um, actually, he probably actually believes that. Uh, he's, he's, he's an odd one. But uh, there's canon six uh, in what it, uh, what it has to say. Um, now, after uh, the Council of Nicaea, things aren't settled. It didn't accomplish what it, what it wanted to be accomplished. Uh, through primarily political machinations, people getting close to Constantine, uh, you start seeing the Arian position becoming more and more popular once again. And after Constantine dies, Constantius. His son takes over. Council after council met in this location or that. So drastic was the activity that one commentator wrote of that time that, quote, the highways were covered with galloping bishops, end quote. Most importantly, councils met at uh, Ariminum, Seleucia, Sirmium, and all of them presented Arian and semi-Arian creeds. Uh, and very few are the names that can be listed of those who were not coerced to subscribe to them. Even Liberius, the bishop of Rome, having been banished from his place and longing to return, was persuaded to give in and compromise on the matter. And that's how Rome defends his compromise, by the way, is that, well, you can't be held accountable for compromising if you're under coercion. So since he'd been banished and he wanted to go back and he signed it, then that's not a free signing. Well, okay, you can say that. Uh, but. During this time, Athanasius is kicked out of his church five times, and he doesn't give in um, to the pressure that is, that is placed against him. And so it's during this time uh, that the phrase Athanasius Contramundum is developed, Athanasius against the world. And I think it's important that we look back today and we go, ah, oh, the great Athanasius, he stands for orthodoxy. But... Based on the modern Roman Catholic theory of authority and church councils, Athanasius was a Protestant. I mean, at a point in time, there were you could easily say, look, Athanasius, you're, you're the only one. Council after council after council has met and condemned you and condemned your position. And yet you're still hiding out in the desert claiming to be the Archbishop of Alexandria. Who do you think you are? The church has spoken. You're in the vast minority. You're it. It's done. And what was his answer? Yeah, but scripture says. Which sounds a whole lot like some guy named Luther 1,200 years later. Almost exactly 1,200 years later. Um, so it's, it's striking to me when people talk about, oh, no, no one ever thought of Sola Scriptura until, until Luther. You, you haven't been doing enough reading in the early church to know the, uh, the difference. And it's interesting, a century after Nicaea, we find a fellow that we haven't gotten to yet, but we're getting close, by the name of Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, writing to Maximin, who is an Arian, and saying the following words, quote, I must not press the authority of Nicaea against you, nor you that of Ariminum against me. I do not acknowledge the one, as you do not the other, but let us come to ground that is common to both. Guess what? The testimony of the Holy Scriptures. So here's Augustine. He's arguing with an Arian, and is his argument listen to the Bishop of Rome? Ah, that wouldn't have worked, because Liberius, man, oh well. Uh, listen to the councils. Uh, no, they've contradicted each other. What well, does he say? We have to go to Scripture. We have to go to ground that is common to both the testimony of the holy scriptures. That's Augustine, a century later. Uh, I think that's very, very important to note. Very, very important to uh, uh, to recognize. Okay. So, no canons on the, uh, on the canon of scripture. Um, there are. Later centuries, interestingly enough, uh, would fabricate canons to the Council of Nicaea, uh, just as a famous document was fabricated, was forged, called the Donation of Constantine, where allegedly Constantine gave the papal lands to the Bishop of Rome, accepted as absolute historical fact for centuries, and upon which many of the papal claims were based, purely fraudulent. And in the centuries thereafter, I did a debate back in 1994, I think, or 95, 1 to 2, uh, at Boston College, uh, a two-on-two debate with Robert St. Genis and and uh, Scott Butler on the papacy at Boston College. And Scott Butler uh, quoted from the Arabic canons of the Council of Nicaea uh, to help substantiate the papacy. And, of course, the Arabic canons are forgeries, uh, but in the, at the end of the 20th century you still have Roman Catholic apologists uh, quoting forged canons uh, attributed to the Council of Nicaea uh, in support of the supremacy of uh, the Bishop of Rome. And I think it was only back in like uh, 2010 or something like that, did a debate uh, on uh, the Marian dogmas, on the Immaculate Conception, and a Roman Catholic attorney uh, quoted Augustine and I had never heard this quotation before, and I even raised the possibility during the debate. I think I said so I have a feeling it's forgery, but when you're in the middle of the debate, it's hard to be looking things like that up when you have you know 10 seconds between uh, times of speaking. Uh, but afterwards, looked it up. Yep, acknowledged even by all Roman Catholic scholarship as a as a forgery. And so uh, over the next number of decades, uh, next number of centuries, I'm sorry, many things will be attributed back to it. And its standing and stature will grow as a result. Um, Then we discover how much that stuff wasn't true, cut it all back to what Nicaea actually did say, and then the internet comes along. And you have the Zeitgeist movie and everything else, where, once again, let's throw a bunch of garbage out there and uh, see what sticks. And in the internet age, pretty much everything does. the the idea of doing serious research and original sources and things like that, uh, not not common these days. So, there's the Council of Nicaea, which met in, 325. Thank you very much. Um, summer of 325, actually. June. Uh, yes, June. There you go. I just don't even want to think about that because I can't imagine what that'd be like meeting here uh, without air conditioning in June. That would be, that would cause everybody to be crazy. So, um, but there's the, the probably more than you ever wanted to know about the Council of Nicaea, but it is important. And I hope some of you, three, four, five years down the road, maybe you're taking a class or something like that, and all of a sudden you start hearing some silliness pouring forth into somebody, you'll realize, ah, I was warned about this. Okay, that's how we sat through all those classes. All right, well, uh, I'll take the notes, but at least I know what's really going on here. All right. Oh, Dan Brown did a lot of that, too. Yeah, he made a lot of money uh, over, off of lying about the Council of Nicaea. Very much so. Very much so. Millions. Uh, there's, there's a lot of money in fake history. There really is. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering together and studying these things. We ask that you would help us to remember, help us to make application, have accurate knowledge so that we might be better instruments in your hand to, to present the gospel in our day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.